morning, good morning. Let's go ahead and find our seats, please. Just like my kids, nobody listens to me. <laughs> Let's go ahead and take our seats, get ready to get going this morning, please. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? How many of y'all thought that we were out of the cold weather thing? I mean, did you, are y'all like me? You kind of look at months at a time at the weather to see, you know, if we're going to be cold again. I hate cold weather, and so I'm always saying, I wonder how much more cold weather we got. <laughs> so yesterday was terrible. I'm just, I'm not a cold weather guy, so we stayed in the house all day. All right, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9 this morning. We're going to go from verse 1 to verse 17. So before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning asking you as we begin to study your word, we pray that the Holy Spirit will teach us as we do this, Lord. Pray that you will open our ears and our eyes to be able to see and hear the truth. And I pray, Father, that it will penetrate deep into our soul and take root and produce fruit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and read through this and then we'll come back and take it apart. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing on your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever, you in, whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all what was hap that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this? about whom I hear such things, and he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all of these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them sit down. 
And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set before the crowd. And they ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Okay. Um, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been through some kind of a mentoring program? How does that typically go? You start out by doing what? Watching them. Watching them. Okay, so you're following them, you're watching them, uh, you're observing everything that they're doing, you're observing everything that they're saying, and things such as this. Isn't that right? And so you listen, you observe, and then you get involved, and then eventually you're set out to fulfill the role that you've been training for. Well, remember what's, going, what's taking place in, in the ministry of Jesus. What's going to take place? What's going to take place is that Jesus will eventually be handed over, and he will be crucified, and then he will be resurrected. And after the resurrection, he will ascend back to the Father. But until that time, he will need to train up his disciples to become apostles. And that's his purpose here. And what, that's what we see is what's going on in this passage. So these, what these disciples are doing, up until this point, up until chapter 9, what have the apostles been doing? Or what have these disciples been doing? They've been watching, right? Jesus has been healing people. He's been raising the dead. He's been um, casting out demons. He even calmed the seas. And his disciples have been watching up until this point. They have not yet been involved in the ministry, have they? They've just been watching and observing. They've been listening to his teaching all of this time as well. But now they're graduating up to the next level. It's kind of like on-the-job training. Uh, so if, if following and observing and just watching and listening was Apostleship 101, I guess this would be Apostleship 201, or maybe even 301. It might be a junior class instead of a sophomore class. I don't know. But they are definitely moving up. And now he's taking them, and he's going to give them some on-the-job training. Now, Jesus first re referred to, the apostle, to them as apostles back in chapter 6. It's the first time that they were referred to as apostles. But they've also been referred to as disciples. What is the difference between a disciple and an apostle? What is a disciple? A follower, okay? What is another word that's also used for a disciple? It'd be like a learner or a student. So it's someone who follows and learns, okay? Now, what about an apostle? What is an apostle? Okay, teacher even beyond that. Authority? What did you say? A sent one. That's literally what apostle means. It means one's who, one who has been sent. Okay? And so, if we see the difference between a disciple and an apostle, up to this point, do you think that these men have been acting as disciples or as apostles? Disciples. Because they've been following and they've been learning. But now Jesus is kind of pushing them into 
more of a role of an apostle. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the process of how Jesus is preparing them to fulfill the ministry for which they have been called. And you know that when Jesus ascends back to the Father, these apostles are going to have to go about their ministry and continue the ministry of Christ, right? So he has to take them through all of these training processes. How many of you have ever heard the term, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called? Y'all heard that? I'm not a big fan of catchy phrases and stuff like that, but this one actually fits today. And so it's in verses 1 and 2 it says, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So here Jesus is sending them out as apostles in training, okay? with all the power and authority that goes with it. He equips them with all of the power and all of the authority that they would need in order to fulfill the mission that they were sent on. They would literally go out and be ambassadors of Christ or representatives of Christ. So when they're going into these little towns, they are actually representing Christ himself. And... We see in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And so what Jesus does is sending them out as apostles in training. He gives them this power and this authority. Have they witnessed the power and authority that Jesus has up until this point? What have they witnessed? Okay, calming the seeds, right? What else have they witnessed? I mean, they even said, who is this that has this power and authority over the, the winds and the seas, right? Exercising demons, okay. What else? Bring the dead back to life. What else? What did he do most of the time? He was healing the sick, right? So is this authority and power? Is this, is this something that he is displaying to these disciples? Absolutely. So they know that when he says, I'm giving you power and authority, they know that he is able to be able to do that because they've seen it in practice. So he sends them out with this authority. And the question is, how does he equip the twelve? course we know that the passage here says that he gives them power and authority over demons and to cure diseases but how does he do this well if we look to the consistency of scripture then we know it's done through the work of the holy spirit because that is what is consistently taught throughout scripture we know that in the old testament how, how did the holy spirit work in the old testament as uh, compared to the new testament Anybody? Exactly. So the Holy Spirit would come upon someone for a specific task or for a specific mission. Isn't that right? Okay. And so we know that the Holy Spirit would come and go, would come and go. But how, does it, how is it different today in the, in the new, under the new covenant? He indwells us. He, he resides in us. He abides in us, right? 
So he gave them the power and authority over demons and to cure disease. He does this through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, when he says that God gave them authority and power over these things, does that mean that God gives all believers and he equips all believers in the same way? No, he doesn't. So what we need to do is we need to be careful to hold on to the eternal truths of God's word without clinging necessarily to the methods that were taking place. Do y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about here? Listen, I mean, if we think about the methods that God has used all throughout Scripture, how many people did God tell to build, build an ark? Huh? One. How many people did God appear to and speak to in a burning bush? One. Are y'all awake this morning? It's cold out there. Y'all should have all kinds of life, right? How many did God speak to in a burning bush? One. One. Thank you. <laughs> how many spoke to so, to uh, how many people did God speak to through a donkey? One. How many people did God give strength through the length of his hair? One. Did Jesus heal people the same way every single time? He had different methods of healing, didn't he? He would speak sometimes to them and they would be healed. He spit on the ground, made mud. And healed people that way as well. Someone touches him. And they're healed. He commands. And the disease leaves. He even put his fingers in a man's ears one time. So that that man could hear. Why is it that Jesus was always doing, was doing this in different ways? Why do you think he did it that way? What are we likely to do if Jesus did the same method every time? Exactly. We, we have a tendency to actually worship the method rather than the messenger. The how over the why. That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, whole denominations have been started based solely on what happened on the day of Pentecost. Because of methods. So while God may not equip all believers in the same way, the truth still remains that God equips those whom he calls and who he sends. Here, Jesus is equipping the disciples for the specific mission that he's sending them on. And we see what he's training them for specifically in the Great Commission. If we look in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted, and Jesus came to them and, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
So what did Jesus start this by saying? He said, all what? Authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so Jesus has the authority to send them. He gives them power when he goes because he tells them that when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they will receive power. But they have a specific mission that God has called them for, and he's going to equip them for that same mission. This is how Jesus is equipping the apostles, by giving them the authority and the power that they will need to do to continue his ministry whenever he ascends back to the Father. So the question is, how does God equip us? We see how he equips the apostles. He gives them power and authority. And we talked about how uh, God doesn't equip all of us believers today in the same way by giving us a power and, and authority over disease and demons and things such as this. So how does God equip us today under the new covenant? Well, in some ways, he does it the same manner by using what? The Holy Spirit, right? We know that we're all equipped through the power of the Holy Spirit. But does he use the same methods that we, all, we were talking about? And we've already answered that question, and it's no. But what does he do? He gives us gifts, doesn't he? Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So when God gives us gifts, he does so by empowering us in order to use these gifts for the furtherance of the kingdom. He also trains us up in these gifts. We see this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to do what? Equip the saints for works of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, 
joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. With each part, is, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I remember when I was in seminary, and I've told some of you in our care group this story, so y'all can just listen to it again. Um, we, when I was in seminary, one of the classes that I was looking, to, the, looking forward to the most was systematic theology. I could not wait to get into that class. And so the guy that came to teach that day, he walks in, he looks like Abraham Lincoln, right? And he stands up there and he talks like this and everything he does is just monotone. It was just boring, 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 boring. I was so disappointed. I was just like, I cannot believe I got to sit through a whole semester of this. It was bad. And then the class that I was least looking forward to was church administration. <laughs> I did not want to go through that class at all. But the professor came up there and he taught straight out of this passage that I just read in Ephesians chapter 4. The whole semester was based on this passage. And it was the best class I had the whole time I was in seminary. He did an outstanding job of showing how God equips the saints for the works of ministry. That it's not, it's not Joel's job. You know, how many of you grew up in a church where... Everybody thought that it was the pastor's job to do works of ministry, and it was our job just to show up, right? As a matter of fact, we say, well, I'll bring my lost friend to church so that the pastor can save him. I've actually heard somebody say that before. How many of y'all have, have witnessed that as well? Is that true? No. So what is true? We're all equipped to do works of ministry. And what are we doing right now? We're being equipped. That's exactly right. We are being equipped. That's why God gives us gifts. So that the body of Christ may be built up and the kingdom continues to grow. So let's look in verse 3. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. In whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. So what's he doing here? The first thing he does is he equips them with the power and authority that they need in order to accomplish their mission that he sends them on. But now what he's doing is he's teaching them to walk by faith. He's teaching them to walk by faith. So why would Jesus tell them not to take anything on this journey? How does that teach them to walk by faith? Okay, all your needs, what? He will provide. So God is sending them out, tells them, Jesus is sending them out, tell them not to take anything with them so that they learn that God is a provider. He's teaching them something that they're definitely going to need in their ministry. To trust God in all things and to walk by faith. Matthew 6, verses 25 through 33. I have taught through this one chapter, I can't tell you how many times in, in the book of Matthew. This is not in my notes, this is a freebie, I won't even charge you for this one. But Jesus tells two, two basic stories here. He says, do not store up for yourself treasures 
on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, right? He says, yet store for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your heart is, your treasure will be also. That was the gist of the first part of that message. And then he goes on to the next part of the message, which is what I'm about to uh, read here about, do not be anxious about anything in your life. What shall you eat? What shall you wear? And you see the difference between the two is when we place our trust in the things of this earth, the, the, when we lay up for ourselves treasures on earth, will you be disappointed? Why? Because everything on this earth is what? Is broken and temporal. If you place your faith in anything of this earth, you will. It's not you might, you will be disappointed. That's why he says to store for yourself treasures in heaven. Thus, he goes on to say, so don't worry about what you will do in your life. Don't worry about food. Don't worry about what you will wear. Because God knows that if you, you need these things, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So in other words, if we're placing all of our faith on the things of this earth, we're going to be disappointed. But if we place our faith in the things in heaven, if we store for ourselves treasures in heaven, then we know that we will never be disappointed because we know God will always be there to provide for us, right? Does that mean we won't go through hard times? No. Does it mean that we may go without? Does it mean it may cost us our life? But aren't these things temporal? So what should we be looking to? The eternal. The eternal. I, had, I went way off here what I've been talking about. So. But he goes on in Matthew 6, 25-33. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body. What you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds in the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So what he's teaching the, the apostles to do is he's teaching them to walk by faith, by not taking anything with them. Now, does this mean that God calls all missionaries to go without any provisions? Again, we need to make sure that we're holding on to the eternal truths of God without clinging to the methods. Okay. Now, just because Jesus told these men at this specific mission that he sends them on not to take 
all of this additional stuff, but to, uh, to go just with what's on basically the clothes on their back, and God will provide for you. But that is not a universal command for all missionaries. And we see that actually in Luke chapter 22, verses 35 to 36. He said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Okay? So in other words, this is not a universal command for all missionaries to go out and to do the same thing. Why are you going to um, Africa with just clothes on your back? Because that's what God told the apostles to do, right? When he sent out the twelve. <laughs> Again, we should not get into the process of worshiping methods, but rather finding the eternal truths. So look in verse 5. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So, how many of you have a tendency, kind of like me, to want to make things happen? Ted, you should be raising your hand. I know you better than that. <laughs> we have a tendency to want to try to make things happen. I remember when I first, when God first really radically changed my life when I was in college, I tried to drag everyone with me, kicking and screaming. I mean, I was bound and determined that everybody in my sphere of influence was going to get saved. If it, I mean, I don't care if it hair-lipped every, every dog in the, in the county, but I mean, I was going to do it, and I was very aggressive. As a matter of fact, it got to the point where people kind of started to avoid me when they saw me coming. They still do that. I don't know why. Oh, I know it. Yep. And so, why do we do that? That's it. That's exactly right. We think that we actually have something to do with God saving people. The only thing we are is messengers, right? We're a tool that God is using, but He is the one who accomplishes the purposes. And so... We like to make things happen. We like to be in charge. But unfortunately, that doesn't work in ministry. What Jesus is telling them is to pronounce a curse on any place that will not receive them because they rejected the provision of salvation that God has provided. Now, if we wanted to try to make things happen, then they would stay in that town until somebody listened. And we would have a tendency to want to do that, right? But that's not what he says. He says, if they do not receive it, leave. And not only that, as you're leaving, knock the dust off your shoes. Why did, they why did he tell them to do that? Are there, is there is any significance to that? Okay, and what does it say about the town they're leaving? Okay, 
So they, they have rejected, right? As a matter of fact, this is actually calling a curse of judgment on this town. And we see that um, in Matthew chapter 10. And this is the same account of what we're reading here in Luke chapter 9. He says, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And so Jesus is serious about this. And if you think about it, we're, we're like, well, Sodom and Gomorrah, those are the worst towns that ever existed. You know, you know what went on there? Well, think about it. A town that has rejected the only way of salvation that God has provided. I mean, that's some serious business. That's why he said it would be worse for them than Sodom and Gomorrah. But by rejecting the disciples, what are they ultimately doing? They're rejecting Christ. We see that in Luke chapter 16, uh, Luke, excuse me, Luke chapter 10, verse 16. This is when Jesus is sending out the 72, and he gives them basically the same instructions when he sends them. He says, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects him, me, rejects him who sent me. I th- of course, we don't have that recorded in this case when, when he sends them out, you know. Uh, I think when they come back, especially when the 72 came back, they were like, can you believe what we actually got to do? And I can imagine the disciples coming back after healing diseases, right? And, and casting out demons. This is the first time that they've actually done stuff like this. I can imagine how exciting that would be. But as far as taking credit, I'm not sure. You know, we don't really have an account of that. It would be tempting. Yep, that's right, he did. So, I mean, it would be tempting to do that. But again, the humility that we need to have is to make sure that we understand that we have nothing to offer whatsoever. It's all God. Yeah, and also by being disobedient because God told him to speak to the rock, and yet he struck it. Hey, that's, I, that's an example of worshiping the method rather than the eternal truth because <laughs> he did the same thing that he did before, right? Good example, very good. Um, so basically what we need to understand is that when God sends us out uh, in, in our mission field, whatever your mission field may be, Your mission field may be at home with your kids. Your mission field may be at work with the people around you. It may be at your play, whether you play golf or you fish or whatever the case may be, and and with the people that are around you. I have guys that I play golf with constantly, all the time. Every one of them are lost. And, And it's just, at first I was like, why doesn't God give me Christian friends to play golf with? But I believe that God has placed me there for a reason. And so I have opportunities to be able to share with them. But this is our mission field. And some of us, some of you have been, may have been called into full-time ministry. But it doesn't matter. We're all ministers. Every single one of us. And all of us have a mission field. Whether it be any of these other things that we talked about. But one thing that we have to remember when we're in the mission field is that God 
provides the results. God is the one who provides results. All we do is be obedient. And he's going to equip us for what we need to do. Let's look in verse 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all what was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. This is our first account of where we hear about the death, the death of John the Baptist. And it's kind of, it, he, Luke kind of sandwiches this right in between the sending out of the 12 and the feeding of the 5,000. But we also see this in the other Gospels. Uh, the other, some of the other Gospels actually go into a little bit more detail and depth about what's going on here about John the Baptist. The fact that uh, the reason that Herod did uh, behead him was because his, um, his um, daughter was, was dancing before them. Made, you know, they were pleased with her and they said, you know, we'll give you, I'll give you whatever you want. She said the head of John the Baptist because of her mother. And so anyway... He ends up uh, beheading him. He didn't really want to, but he did it because he was under peer pressure. And so we're not sure exactly why this is interjected right here, but I think many commentators believe that the news of John's death is what caused Jesus maybe to, get, to withdraw with his disciples after they came back into the town called Bethsaida. It could be to mourn. It could be to rest. We don't know exactly why. But we see that in the next verses, starting in verse 16, excuse me, in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to, the king, spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came to him and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countrysides to find lodging and to get provision, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no food. He says, excuse, excuse me. He says, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them sit, all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up of 12 baskets of broken pieces. First thing that Jesus does when the crowds come to him, you know, they're, they're, they're going away off to be by themselves, and these crowds find out where they are, and they start following them over there. This happened quite often. And so what does Jesus do? He welcomes them. He doesn't send them away. He's like, oh, gosh, here they come again. I mean, he, he welcomes them. As a matter of fact, in, uh, in Matthew's account of it, it says that he had compassion on the crowds. So we see the, the heart of Jesus toward these people. But before he fed them the loaves and the fish, 
he fed them with the message of the kingdom. And he brought, he brought validity to that message by healing them, curing them of their diseases. Again, displaying the authority that he had over these diseases. But the apostles came up to him and they're like, and, and I'm sure they're acting all compassionate, you know. They're like, you know, Lord, we've been here all day long. These people are so tired. They need to go find a place to stay. They need to get some provisions. They need to get some food. They're hungry. Let's let them go, right? We've been here long enough. And what does Jesus say? You feed them. <laughs> I would love to see the looks on these guys' faces whenever Jesus tells them to do this. You go feed them. And, and they're like, we don't have any. We got five loaves and two fish. And another account says that they actually got it from a young boy. And I can imagine that this young boy's mom had packed his lunch for him. Five loaves and two fishes. You know, she's like, here, you can go, but just I want you to take something to eat with you. And can you imagine the story? This little boy goes back to his mom and says, guess what happened to the five loaves and the two fishes you gave me? I can imagine just what was going on here. But he says, you give them something to eat. And again, we see that Jesus is training the apostles to trust in him in something that is impossible to do. They've seen him do the impossible. They've seen it over and over and over again. And so he's teaching them to train, uh, to, to trust in him. The passage says there were about 5,000 men, but that didn't include men, women and children. As a matter of fact, some commentators believe that it could be as many as twenty to 30,000 people who were there on this day. And they've got five loaves and two fishes. Jesus tells him to organize these people into groups of 50. He gives thanks, distributes the food to the apostles. And then the apostles give it to the crowd. The disciples are likely using baskets in order to distribute the food as they're taking it to the crowds, the people in the crowds. And then when everyone is done, everybody's full, they're satisfied, they come back, they got 12 full baskets of leftovers from five loaves and two fish. I've heard this passage taught so many times, and this is the message that they take from it. That God can take what little we have and use it to accomplish great things. And while this is true, we must seek to find the greater eternal message behind this event. So it's important for us to look at all the gospel accounts whenever we're reading a passage about something that took place that the disciples are recording. Okay, It's important to look at all the accounts. And John gives us some very important details that we need to consider whenever we're interpreting this. John 6, 14-15 says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You know that this is the only miracle that was recorded in all four Gospels except for the resurrection. As a matter of fact, the response that the crowd has to this miracle is one of the greatest responses of any miracle that had taken place up until this point. They literally 
wanted to take him by force and make him king. I mean, isn't this what they were looking for after all? This king that would come and deliver Israel from Rome? That once again, that Israel would be a sovereign nation? If this guy can do this, he can do anything. There is no one who can conquer us. Let's make him king. But that's not why Jesus came to them. As a matter of fact, this is his response in John chapter 6, verses 22 through 65. We're running out of time. This is a very lengthy passage. I'm going to try to get through it. If not, I'm just going to kind of give you the Reader's Digest version. It says, On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus would not enter the boat with his disciples, but the disciples had gone away alone. All right, so let me, let me find where I'm, I need to go. Verse 25, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So in other words, that wasn't really the message after all, was the fact that Jesus was saying, I can provide you something to eat. That wasn't the purpose of his message. So I'm not going to go into, I'm not going to read all of this. It's going to take too long. Basically, Jesus says, you, you know that God provided manna for the Israelites while they were in the wilderness. And he says, I am the bread of life. And basically, he tells them that unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have no part of me. And so the, the people that were following him, we have to remember there were, there were different groups of people that were following him. First, you had the masses. You had the people that were following Jesus because they were, of all the things that he was doing. He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. He was doing all these wonderful things. They wanted to see what he was going to do next. And then you had disciples, not just the 12, but you had actual disciples who were following him around, listening to his teaching. They may have been healed, and they may be following to hear what he's preaching about. And then you have the 12. And so you got this large group of people who had been fed. And Jesus said, the only reason that you're here right now is because I fed you. He said, but I tell you that the real message behind that is the fact that I am the bread of life. Why did he compare himself to the manna in the wilderness? If you think about it, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, God provided life for them by giving them bread to eat. Physical life. It was a necessity for them to survive. They needed it to live. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. I am your source of life. You absolutely need me. Without me, there is no spiritual life. While God may have provided physical life with the manna, Jesus provides eternal life through his own flesh, his broken flesh and his spilt blood. That's the message. So we need to hold on to the eternal truths of God's word without clinging on to the methods that he used in order to accomplish his purposes. Because if we do, then we have a tendency to worship the method rather than the messenger. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the fact that 
You didn't call us to be part of your kingdom, to build your kingdom and just leave us here on our own. But you actually equipped us for everything that we needed in order to do exactly what you called us to do. You have already given us everything that we need. We have it. I pray that we'll walk in it by faith, trusting you with every step. Thank you for the life that Christ has provided for us through the spilling of his blood, the breaking of his flesh. And we thank you for the righteousness that has been imputed towards us as a result of that sacrifice in his perfect life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.